At the end of our last interview, we promised that our next stop would be Boston and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. The good thing about virtual traveling, it gives us the flexibility of changing plans quickly and effortlessly. The news has just come out that the FDA has granted in her two trastuzumab deruxtica approval in the U.S. for the treatment of metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer in the second line of treatment. The FDA granted this approval based on data from the Destiny Breast Phase three trial presented a month ago during the European Society for Medical Oncology, also known as ESMO, Congress 2021. Prior to the study, another antibody drug conjugate, TDM1, Katsila, was considered standard of care in the second-line setting. This trial determined that in HER2 was a vast improvement as compared to Katsila. The median progression-free survival was 25 months on in HER2 versus 7 months for TDM1, which is one of the biggest differences shown in any randomized trial ever and is, of course, an enormous breakthrough. Dr. Sarah Hurwitz was a senior investigator on this trial, and we first spoke with her during the week of ESMO after the trial results had just been announced. The plan was to air the Sarah Hurwitz interview later in the series, but this news has made us rethink the original plan and bring it to you right away this week. Welcome to the RMBC Live podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm so glad you're here since no one should face NBC alone. Today, we continue on our travelogue of sorts as part of our Road to a Cure series to the most innovative cancer centers in the country as we meet with the very special oncologist researchers who get up every day with the mission to treat and eventually cure MBC. These are the very people who will find new treatments to extend our lives. This is the second stop in our series that will release a new interview on the concept of a cure every Monday until the beginning of the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in early December. What has struck me the most about this series brought to us by our Road to a Cure team, Victoria Goldberg, Paula Jane, Ellen Landsberger, and Kate Fitzer, is that each of these special interviews can feel like an intimate conversation with your favorite friend, who also happens to be an oncologist researcher with real knowledge to share and a real interest in making our lives better. This is exactly what we try to do here at the podcast, and this interview will not disappoint. Here's co-host Victoria Goldberg and Kate Fitzer, kicking off our time with the medical director of the Clinical Researcher Unit of the Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center and the director of the Breast Cancer Clinical Trials Program at UCLA. Dr. Sarah Hurwitz is also the Associate Professor of Medicine at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Now here's Victoria. Hi, friends. Dr. Larry Norton 
the subject of our last interview, is fond of analogies, as you may have noticed already. And he has one about the difference between East Coast Oncology and West Coast Oncology. It's like, he says, two different styles of jazz. There was East Coast jazz, and there was West Coast jazz, and there is East Coast Oncology and West Coast Oncology. They're very different in their approaches to the disease. These different approaches are cultural, not scientific. The New Yorker will say, what's the very best thing for me? And the person in California will say, what's the thing for me that's very, very good, but is the least harmful? Today, we're headed for LA to ask Director of the Breast Oncology Program at UCLA, Dr. Sarah Hurwitz, how she feels about the possibility of a cure for metastatic breast cancer. And maybe we will ask her to comment on Dr. Norton's jazz analogy. I borrowed this quote from a wonderful book entitled Radical, The Science, Culture, and History of Breast Cancer in America. It was written by a former staff journalist of Time magazine, Kate Pickard who at the age of 35 was diagnosed with HER2 positive ER negative breast cancer. In her words, Dr. Hurwitz was the quarterback of her cancer care. At the end of the book, Kate thanks Dr. Hurwitz for her care in the following way. It is a hard thing to put your life into someone else's hands, but Sarah's confidence in the medical treatments available to me and her clear-headed way of explaining them boosted my optimism early. When you're diagnosed with a complicated disease for which treatments are changing all the time, it's a gift to have a doctor in your corner who is contributing to the global understanding of the disease. In addition to providing what I believe was the best and most modern care available anywhere in the world, Sarah hugged me when I needed it and answered countless emails during my treatment. So friends, what else can I add to top this? So here is our conversation with the Kate's cancer care quarterback, Dr. Sarah Hurwitz. Hi, I'm Victoria Goldberg. This is my um, co-host and friend, Kate Pitzer, and we're so incredibly happy to see you. And I just want to thank you for being here. It's really my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Let's get down to business. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would want to know what made you become an oncologist and how did you become a part of Dennis Lehman's team? The short answer for how I became an oncologist is a lecture on my very first day of medical school. There was a very inspirational speaker who was an oncologist, and this was in the mid-90s. We were just learning about HIV and AIDS. She was a hematologist oncologist who specialized in lymphomas and leukemias and was noticing that AIDS patients were developing lymphomas at a very high rate. And 
she gave a lecture on the intimate relationship that oncologists are able to enjoy with their patients from the very first meeting and that it is such a privilege to um, be invited to take care of a patient with such a scary illness. It's not like going to your pediatrician or your general doctor for a quick checkup uh, and getting a blood pressure medication. It's dealing with often a life-threatening illness that's Surrounded by a lot of fear, the term cancer, I think, frightens people. Her lecture was so inspiring about how we are invited into our patient's home, like we are brought in and all the walls break down immediately. It touched on exactly why I wanted to go into medicine. It wasn't because it was prestigious or made a lot of money. It was being able to impact a human being in a way. And so that that sort of became my goal. And then fast forward, getting through med school and residency and fellowship. As I was completing my fellowship, I was pregnant with my daughter, my second child. And I was planning on going into lymphoma, like my mentor, my inspiration had. I was working in a laboratory for lymphoma and actually was doing a lot of research on immune therapy relating to lymphoma. And I had been asked if I wanted to stay on as a super fellow in Dr. Slayman's laboratory, which means you work really hard and you get like a fellow's pay. (laughs) And I had now two kids and a husband who was going to be in residency another three to four years. And I thought, oh my gosh, we're going to be homeless. But around that time, Dr. Slayman had me come meet him and said that his colleague had worked with me, Dr. Glaspie, and thought that I knew what I was doing. And he wanted to know if I wanted to come on and be a breast cancer doctor. And I said, absolutely not. absolutely nothing I want to do less. I want to have a nice mixture of genders to treat. And I've been focusing on 35 lymphomas and I don't know enough about breast cancer to treat patients. And you already have all these breast cancer experts at UCLA. Mark Pegram was there and Rich Petrus and John Glaspie. I said, what do you need me for? Anyway, after the course of three or four meetings, he loves the Godfather. And so I always tease him. He made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And I decided to finally come on. And within a year and a half of being on faculty, all of the breast experts that were there left. And I assumed their practices. So I learned breast cancer very quickly in that circumstance. So that was a very long answer to your first question. I've had not a straight road to medicine or oncology or breast cancer. A lot of times I doubt the doors that open before me and question them, but then eventually go through them. And they've had some really nice surprises. Kate and I run a support group at SHARE. And we actually have a patient of yours who is a member of our group, and she loves you. So you have a reputation as a person who does come into people's houses and becomes part of their life. Oh, thank you. Anyway, Kate, I'll let you start asking questions about our main topic here. In the metastatic community, there's a lot of debate as to what a cure means. So what do you think a cure looks like? And do you think a cure is possible? It's a really great question. I want to ask it in a different way, though. 
Do we really know that anyone who's been diagnosed with any stage of breast cancer is truly cured? And the answer is probably not. Even a patient diagnosed with stage one breast cancer that's hormone receptor positive, has good prognostic features associated with it, small lymph node negative, still has a risk 20 years later of it coming back elsewhere in the body. Not a brand new cancer, but a recurrence elsewhere in the body is stage four cancer. And so really, we don't know if cure is achievable in the majority of patients ever diagnosed with breast cancer. And I don't mean this to be a scary statement because we don't have cures for diabetes, thyroid disease, HIV, but people can live good quality lives while living with these diseases. And so I think reframing the question to how can we convert metastatic breast cancer into a disease that you can coexist with and have the upper hand in terms of quality of life and quantity of life, that's the big win we're going for. Because we don't know unless a woman dies of something else and we do an autopsy and don't find any breast cancer there, then we can say she's cured. There are patients who have metastatic breast cancer who have had very successful treatment and we can't see any evidence of disease on scan. And that goes on for many, many years. And a lot of us clinicians are like, should we stop all therapy and just watch? What do we do? We just don't know. And so I think it's a good goal to have somebody be able to live out the duration of their life without having any evidence of disease based on monitoring that we do with imaging or blood tests. But I think the more important, maybe more realistic goal is to convert it as much as possible into a disease with which a woman can live and still preserving quality of life. We don't have a cure at the moment. And we don't know when we will have the cure. The dogma that breast cancer is incurable puts a stop in some ways to treating patients in a curative way when they diagnose metastatic. How do you feel about that? Do you think that it actually is right to go straight into palliative treatments instead of trying to cure somebody who was diagnosed metastatic? At first? Well, I think what we need is more evidence. We need to design clinical trials that challenge that dogma and prospectively design a study where half the patients with metastatic disease at first diagnosis are treated really aggressively with the best systemic therapy and surgery and radiation versus doing systemic therapy and therapies that will preserve quality of life and control the disease. And there have been a handful of studies that have done that design. They weren't the best design studies, and the studies were run in areas and in times when we didn't have available the best targeted therapies, like trastuzumab for HER2-positive breast cancer, for example. So these studies have not shown that being more aggressive actually improves overall survival when you compile all the data. And in fact, the most recent of these studies reported 
reported a year ago now or so at ASCO indicated that there wasn't a benefit by being more aggressive. You are putting patients through surgeries that have their own risks, radiation that has their own risks, and to what end? And in fact, survival for triple negative breast cancer treated that way when it's metastatic is worse than just starting on systemic therapy. Before we change the dogma, we need to have evidence that doing so is the right thing. And I always reflect on my Hippocratic oath that Mm -hmm. before we ever intervene on a patient and do something to a person, we have to have fairly good confidence that our intervention on them is more likely to help them than it is to harm. So our next question really was again, regarding the cure or maybe more like chronic um, condition because we'll be continuing treatment and living our life. So we're really wondering about what are the challenges to get us to that point because we're not quite there yet. We have some really good therapies out there right now, but we're still not anywhere near where we need to be to be chronic. Yeah. And I think, again, it varies based on the type or the flavor of metastatic breast cancer um, that a patient is living with. So for Example, HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer. I say, actually, I've got a good number of patients that are living with a chronic illness and have been living with metastases more than 10 to 15 years and doing the things they want to be doing in their life. And data that was presented at the European Society for Medical Oncology this past weekend indicates that we may be even pushing that needle even further forward for HER2 positive breast cancer with the types of new therapies available. Very exciting. However, for triple negative breast cancer, we have so much more work to do. And I think the problem with that subtype is that we scientists haven't defined triple negative breast cancer well enough by what it is. We have defined it by what it is not. It's ER and PR negative and it's HER2 negative. So we know what doesn't work. But within that 15% of breast cancer subgroup are probably a lot of different molecular subtypes that each have their own driving factor that we need to be able to learn how to identify and then how to target it. And until we can subclassify that particular subtype and treat it as such, I don't know that we're going to make huge headway in turning that into a chronic disease. We're making big strides in hormone receptor positive HER2 negative. The data are really positive with the new therapies that are available there. But again, to your point, we need more work to be done. The median overall survival is still around five years. We need it to be longer than that. And we need to allow a woman to be able to live out her natural lifespan and not be satisfied with a 50% chance she'll be alive in five years. We need to do better. That's true. We all agree on that. We're used to uh, thinking about uh, breast cancer subtypes as defined by the biomarkers, the HER2 positive, the HR positive, the, S, the triple negative, as you said, is the group that lumped together by what these cancers don't have instead of what they have. So I would love to hear more about these new subtypes based on the gene expression and how does it help us in treating breast cancer? Yeah, so for a biomarker for a protein or a, a gene mutation or anything to be clinically relevant, 
it should be not only associated with the prognosis, like how likely is the disease to behave badly or metastasize or be associated with early death or be associated with brain nets, but it should predict benefit from a particular agent. So a useful biomarker tells us if that biomarker is present or overexpressed, that that means if I give that patient a given therapy, he or she is likely to do well with that therapy because I have evidence when that biomarker is present, this is the therapy to use. That means it's a predictive biomarker. And there aren't a whole lot, but there's an increasing number. Our gene expression profiling of tumors, which is where you're not looking at the DNA and you're not looking at the protein, but you're looking at the RNA, the expression of that genetic code, gives us information about subtypes, but right now we're not utilizing it a whole lot for metastatic breast cancer because it's not giving us information about what therapy would be useful. It's exploratory. It's utilized in clinical trials for us to go, huh, can we figure out within the HER2 positive subtype, if there are particular patients who are most likely to live a long time or do better with TDM1. So it's really investigational. We're not yet using those types of gene expression profiles to guide treatment. In breast cancer, the biomarkers that we use that are really well validated, we know they help us make treatment decisions, are the hormone receptors, HER2, and half or more of patients with HER2 positive breast cancer also have hormone receptors like you. We also use the BRCA1 and 2 gene mutations. If patients have a germline genetic mutation that they got from mom or dad in BRCA1 or 2, the Angelina Jolie gene, then we now have a <laughs> class of drugs, PARP inhibitors that are useful. PIK3CA is another one which is a mutation in the gene for PI3 kinase. And we have drugs that target that. We have alpelacib, which is FDA approved based on that. So as we get more sophisticated about which biomarkers are not only prognostic, but also predictive, we'll hopefully see more targeted therapies. And the more targeted a therapy is, the higher the likelihood it'll work and that it'll be less toxic because it's targeting something about the tumor that's not seen in normal cells. We were seeing some movement in HER2 low. So we're trying to understand how that's going to go forward. I know it's in investigation right now. Do you have any insight on any of those therapies and how it might look in the future for us? Because there are quite a few of us ER positive patients that are actually low HER2. And right now we don't have accessibility to the HER2 treatments. So let me just back up. We know that HER2 is expressed at some level on many, many cells in our body that are normal. Heart cells and bone marrow cells, and it's a normal gene in our body, and it's expressed normally. It's important in the development of the fetus's heart cardiac system. It is present at some level on most cells, if not all, in our body. Breast cancers can have varying levels of expression, but the only breast cancer that benefits from the drug Herceptin or trastuzumab are those that have clear overexpression, that three plus, like very strong expression of that antigen, HER2, on the cell surface. 
In normal cells, you may have 20,000 receptors per cell. In a HER2 positive three plus cancer cell, it's on the order of 2 million receptors. So that's sort of logarithmic difference. There is a drug that was FDA approved almost two years ago now called trastuzumab Derextecan or TDXD, which is an antibody, it's Herceptin, which is linked to chemo, high number of chemo molecules per antibody, and it delivers the chemo to the HER2 on cancer cells. This is a unique drug because once it's taken up into the HER2 positive cancer cell and the chemo is released, the chemo is membrane permeable. It's allowed to leave the cancer cell, which is different from TDM1, another antibody drug conjugate where it can't leave the cancer cell. And when it leaves that cancer cell, it can kill nearby cancer cells that have no HER2 expression or low HER2 expression. So this is called the bystander effect of TDXD. And they reported that some patients with low HER2 expression, meaning there's a little bit or a mild amount of HER2 on the cancer cell, but the patient doesn't have a HER2 positive breast cancer, that there's around 40% of patients treated with this drug with HER2 low breast cancer had their disease shrink or disappear. So those were very intriguing. It's not that HER2 low breast cancer is a subtype. We don't have any evidence that that behaves any differently from HER2 zero breast cancer. It's just that the way this drug works, it might be able to deliver this chemo close enough to the tumor that it has activity. And there are other drugs like TDXD that are being developed that similarly release the payload near HER2 and may have anti-tumor activity. The downside of having a drug like this that isn't specific to HER2 overexpressing is you're getting chemo released around the cancer cell, not in it directly, and you may have more toxicity. You can have low white counts, you can have diarrhea or nausea or hair thinning, other toxicities that you don't see when it's really targeted just to the HER2 positive breast cancer. So more data is going to be coming out. And that drug, if it's shown to be really effective in HER2 low based on the phase three trial, it may be available to our patients. But there are ongoing studies now that are enrolling patients that are classified as HER2 low. The other thing is, I would just mention, if you get your tumor tested at one lab on day one, and it's HER2 zero, you could have it re-biopsied and tested in another lab and they'll call it HER2 one plus. The level of HER2 expression varies and different labs may interpret HER2 totally differently. It's just pathologists aren't good enough at being completely consistent each time. So if you want entry to a trial and you're HER2 zero, you could always retest the tumor and see. Usually there's variations from time to time. Oh, wow. That's good to know. Now, and I wonder, could there be variations in the tumor itself and the first biopsy didn't actually pick that up? Absolutely. Okay. Interesting. So you just mentioned a drug that's being tested for HER2 low. Is that the same drug as in HER2? Yeah. I get used to only saying the generic names. So in HER2 is a drug by many names. Drug development, you start usually with a letter and a number. So it used to be known as DS801. And then it got a generic name, trastuzumab directs which is 
trastuzumab's Herceptin and directs TCAN is the chemo that it's linked to. And the acronym is TDXD. And when it gets approved by the FDA, it gets a trade name. And the trade name they selected was NHER2. So this all makes it very confusing for patients and doctors alike. I can imagine. It took me a good number of years to memorize DA, DSA-201A. And yes, yes, I forgot the A. <laughs> and the same thing with tocotinib. And now I don't even know what it's called these days. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so this is a great drug. And there was new data presented just on Saturday morning relating to it. it. it Very fascinating. At ASMO? Uh-huh. Wonderful. Yeah. When it was presented at San Antonio, Dr. Krop presented it and it was a heavily pretreated population and he was showing the results for that. And there were two oncologists sitting behind me and one turned to the other and said, are those numbers real? Is there a mistake in there? Yeah, if you look at the data, I, I would say the data that were presented are nothing short of historic. I was an investigator on this trial. I'm the senior investigator, so I, I have a conflict there because I was part of the trial. It was a comparison between this drug and TDM1. And this drug's progression-free survival is so much better than TDM1. It's just really phenomenal. I think it's going to be practice changing almost immediately that we'll be using this drug in earlier settings before the heavily pretreated oh, so setting. The only problem, of course, with that drug is that because of the way it behaves, it can cause a lot more adverse effects. And I, I have a few friends who are on this drug, and one of them is on that drug from the beginning, from the clinical trial. And it's not an easy drug to tolerate. Indeed. Although the evidence from this study indicated that the life-threatening risk of damage to the lung mm -hmm. has been mitigated. There were no deaths from the interstitial lung disease. There were no grade four events. So I think the way that the patients were monitored and managed who developed any shortness of breath or signs of lung trouble was more aggressive and, and the outcomes of patients was much better. So I think with time and education of the clinicians, we might be able to help with the toxicity. Well, especially considering how wonderful this drug is. So on the biomarker, we have one more question regarding that. We're hearing a lot about the androgen receptor, and there's a high number of estrogen-positive patients that actually have that receptor, and some triple-negative patients have that as well. Is this uh, a new biomarker, something that can be targeted? You're absolutely right. Androgen receptor is expressed on a lot of breast cancers, and we haven't unfortunately seen great evidence of activity when we target it. So it's not something we use outside of a clinical trial. There were a couple of studies in triple negative breast cancer, and they defined androgen receptor positivity as anyone whose tumor had greater than 1% of the cells expressing it. So not really a high threshold to cross. And they only showed about 19% of the patients had their tumor shrink with androgen blockade. Not really stunning results. And there are ongoing studies evaluating the use of these agents, but I, I wouldn't use it outside of a clinical trial yet. If a patient has AR positive breast cancer, I'd look for a trial for them, but not depend on AR blockade. Mm -hmm. Okay.
I wanted to go back. I was so interested in what you said a few minutes ago about testing her to overexpression in different labs with different results. I was at San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium two years ago, and there was a presentation where a presenter who was a pathologist said that the number of HER2 positive cases is less than what we've always assumed. We always said 20%, but in fact, you can definitively say it's only 15%. And so that seemed very clearly understood. There was nothing surprising about that. But then, again, there is a person who attends our support group, and she was tested both by fish and IHC to be HER2 negative. Then she decided to do a Foundation 1 series, And that one came back with her having ERBB2 mutation. And it said that she can be effectively treated with both Herceptin and Progetta. So that made me so confused that I really want to ask you, what is that all about? It's a really good question. There's a difference in gene amplification and gene mutation. So remember, back to high school or college biology, everybody gets a set of genes from mom and a set of genes from dad. So for every protein, we have 23 chromosomes from mom, 23 from dad, and we have a gene from mom and a gene from dad for everything. So two copies. So what happens sometimes is that one of the genes in the tumor, instead of having two copies, the cell makes way too many copies of that gene, and that's called amplification. And then the gene gets transcribed to RNA, and then the RNA is read and translated into a protein that's expressed. So when you have amplification of the HER2 gene, you have more than two copies. You've got sometimes 10, 20 different copies of of HER2, and that makes the cell crank out that HER2 protein, which is then expressed on the cell. And that type of breast cancer was first identified in 1987 by my boss, Dr. Slayman, (laughs) as being associated with the worst outcome. And that's known as HER2 positive breast cancer. And it means the gene was amplified and the proteins overexpressed. Contrast that to a HER2 mutation. And as you said, Originally, he said it was 30% of breast cancer, but testing changed and larger data sets were looked at. And it's somewhere, I would say, between 15 and 20% of breast cancer is HER2 positive, overexpressing, amplified. Looking at HER2 mutation, now a mutation in a gene is when there's something about the gene that's funky. There aren't too many copies. It's just broken. There is a problem with the gene itself. So the protein that's generated from that faulty gene is funky. And when there's a HER2 mutation, it causes a funny HER2 protein. And that HER2 protein can turn itself on. It, it gets activated on its own. It's called constitutively activated. So it's, its engine is always running. There's no off switch. And that is rare in breast cancer. That only occurs in probably less than 3% of all breast cancer. It's been more associated with invasive lobular breast cancer Mm -hmm. and later Lyme. Um, And in that type of breast cancer, we don't have good evidence that drugs like 
Perceptin or Progetta that target the outside of the protein are really effective, but there are drugs that get into the inside of the receptor, they're pills, like neuroactive, that can block the inside of the receptor. And there is some really promising early evidence that that's an effective strategy. I actually have just put a patient on this trial called Summit looking at this. And for the first time, tumor markers are plummeting with this treatment because we discovered there was a HER2 mutation. So this is uh, more commonly seen in cancers like lung cancer, for example. It's rare in breast cancer. But now with these next generation sequencing, we can sequence the tumor DNA like foundation one and all these other tests. You can find those mutations and then refer patients for trials like this one trial looking at neuratinib. We would really like to hear your thoughts on the action steps getting towards that cure or towards that chronic um, condition that we're talking about. Now, is it going to come between the cooperation between community and medical oncologists, as well as the biotech um, industry, government funding? How do you see us all working together to come together to, to achieve this goal that we are looking for? Yeah, I think it's all of the above. I think we need definitely patient involvement. I, for example, sit on the Department of Defense Breast Cancer Research Program Integration Panel, and, and we have advocates that sit on the grant review on the integration panel. Fran Visco, I think, is very famous here, and she's got a, a strong leadership in this realm. But I think that the education of advocates who can lobby Congress for funds and sit on ethics committees and sit on steering committees for the design of clinical trials and have a real voice about what kinds of endpoints are important, what kind of difference in outcome is meaningful to a patient, what level of toxicity and quality of life parameters are reflective of goals of care of the patient, because what we think as doctors doesn't always jive with what patients think. So having patient presence is really critical. Science needs to move forward. And I'm happy to see a lot of grants coming through and early phase studies that are really trying to aim to identify subsets within triple negative or subsets within each of these other disease types that develop resistance. How do cancers become resistant to therapy? How can we circumvent or prevent that resistance to treatment? We are making strides. There are registries around the world. And the one I like to quote right now, because it's very recent evidence, is from a French cancer center group. 18 cancer centers came Mm -hmm. together and they began to monitor every single patient diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer beginning in 2008. And they followed them all the way through 2017. And last year at ESMO, they presented these data where they showed that a woman diagnosed in 2008 with her two positive metastatic breast cancer had about a 38-month median overall survival. So half the patients were dead around 38 months, half were alive. Mm -hmm. And as you go out the next five years or so, that number goes up to 58 months. And they haven't even gotten to the median overall survival for patients diagnosed in the year 2014, you know, 15, et cetera. So we are beginning to push that curve and get to that endpoint. But for triple negative breast cancer, 12 months, 12 months. 
12 months. It's just we're not pushing the curve out or that needle forward far enough. So I think we have to focus efforts on those really aggressive subtypes like triple negative. I had spoken to Dr. Stephanie Goff recently, and the only way for us to move the needle, in her opinion, is by having more and more people participate in the clinical trials, because that's the only thing that will move us forward. And we agree with that wholeheartedly. But then there are also reasons that we as patients see that prevent us from uh, going on some trials that seem to be quite a good option for us. There are all these uh, exclusionary criteria and inclusionary criteria, and then there is the washout period that sometimes makes it very difficult. What is your feeling about that? And what would be the first things you would change about the way the clinical trials are written in general? Clinical trial participation is absolutely how the field of breast cancer moves forward and how the the needle is pushed forward. So I completely agree with Stephanie. We cannot get approval of new agents and see outcomes improve without clinical trials evaluating the new drugs that are, are being developed. So there would be no Herceptin or NHER2 or Tucatinib or Sasituzumab or immune therapy. I mean, just nothing would get out without being tested in clinical trials. The participation of minority groups in clinical trials, not just ethnic or racial minority groups, but also socioeconomic minority groups, people living in rural areas who don't have as many financial resources to get to larger academic centers that have trials. Those are challenges that really do need to be addressed. And the reason is not only does it benefit a person to go on a clinical trial, we think that outcomes are better for clinical trial participants If for no other reason, then they are being monitored incredibly closely, not only by their doctor and their the nurse, but also by the coordinator of the study, the monitor of the sponsor, the FDA, the IRB, the monitoring board. There are so many layers to ensure patient safety now that patient outcomes may be better in certain groups for patients who go on studies than those who don't. But also... If you don't enroll a broad group of patients that are reflective of real world on a clinical trial, then you're only figuring out how drug A works for a wealthy white woman (laughs) rather than does it work in Asian populations, Hispanic, Black women, women who have less access to being able to go to visits every week to the clinic, et cetera. So it's really important as we develop and approve drugs that we make sure we've adequately tested them in all flavors of humans. And to do that, we need more people to enroll in the studies. So that's a huge area of interest for me. Some of this is being addressed by academic centers opening small oncology practices in rural communities or in communities that have more diverse patient populations. And I think that's helping. Dr. Slayman always says, if you can't bring Muhammad to the mountain, bring the mountain to Muhammad. And that's exactly what a lot of these academic satellite offices do because you can then open large clinical trials in those centers and you don't make patients drive three hours to get 
access to a medicine like that. And I can't blame patients from having doubts or reticence to go on studies. There were great injustices that occurred in the name of research in the past, not only in World War II with the Nazis, but our own horrible stories in the U.S. with the Tuskegee Airmen. So, of course, I don't blame people for worrying about that and thinking about that or having that as a reason not to participate. However, the levels of monitoring that are now in place, the regulatory hurdles one needs to go through to ensure patient safety and full informed consent are phenomenal. And they actually prevent a lot of people from conducting research because it's so much work now compared to what it used to be. You know, when Dr. Slayman did the original Herceptin study, sign a consent and that's about it. Now it's like (laughs) very regimented. And and so I, I would provide that reassurance to patients. Anything that excited you uh, about asthma? I didn't even realize that asthma just finished. Yeah, it's uh, the TDXD results. People should just Google Destiny Breast 03 and look at the results yourself. Really exciting. And then Mona Lisa 2 was big news. It was overshadowed by the TDXD data. But this study looking at CDK4-6 inhibitor ribocyclib is the first clinical trial of a CDK4-6 inhibitor in the first-line setting combined with an aromatase inhibitor that shows an improved overall survival with ribocyclib. The median overall survival from this study was over 60 months. There was more than a one-year improvement by adding ribocyclib. So patients lived on average, a year longer by going on ribocyclib in the frontline setting. So it's the first study of a CDK4-6 inhibitor that's met that endpoint in that particular combination. And I think it's great data and it is moving the needle forward. So it's really great data to see. It was ribocyclid plus an aromatase inhibitor or just the aromatase just inhibitor? Just the aromatase. Yeah. That's great news. Wonderful. It's good. It's good to know. All right. So we're done with uh, the main portion of our show. And I just wanted to ask you at the end. So what do you like to do for fun? (laughs) I know you have two kids. How old are they? I do. I have a 15-year-old sophomore in high school and a 20-year-old junior in college. Don't you think she had them at in high school? (laughs) (laughs) They had them in residency. I was the insane one who got pregnant during residency and fellowship. Yes, you definitely (laughs) were the insane one. (laughs) Against the advice of many male colleagues ahead of me in years who said you could never do it. And I took that as a challenge. I really enjoy watching movies and listening to Audible books because I don't have time to actually sit and read. I have to multitask. When I'm driving or walking my dog, I'll do an Audible book. I love his history. So right now I'm reading, it's an older book, Team of Rivals, all about Lincoln and the presidential election. It's a 40-hour audible book, and I'm down to 20 hours. I feel like a great sense of accomplishment. I'm sure. (laughs) Another year and you'll be done. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. It was such an incredibly good conversation and we're so grateful i do want to say thank you so much for from our listeners from me for i'm sure victoria i learned so much and you really answered 
the questions in such great depth and understanding for us at a level that we can all understand. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. We have reached the end of this episode. Three years ago, I was very lucky to be accepted into the 2018 class of the NBCC's Project Lead. I learned so much during that week in San Diego from every member of the Stella staff, but Sarah Hurwitz and Stephanie Goff were by far my favorite instructors. So no surprise, Dr. Hurwitz was one of the first researchers I contacted when we decided to do this series. She is undoubtedly one of the busiest people I know, but she agreed right away. That tells you enough about the person she is. Both Kate and I could spend another day peppering Dr. Hurwitz with questions, and we hope she comes back to speak with us again. So, after our short detour to LA, next week, as promised, Dr. Nancy Lynn and Heather Parsons are our guests on the road to a cure. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and this Road to a Cure series is produced and edited by our energetic and brilliant senior producer, Victoria Goldberg. In addition, the Road to a Cure series teams includes Paula Jane, Ellen Landsberger, and Kate Fitzer. Expert sound design by Samantha Silverstein, original music from Connor Kinsley, and guest research by Cindy Frempong. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our News Blast, rate and review us. Look for a new episode every Monday. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rmbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.